for all that God is going to continue to do in your lives. This morning, there was a breakfast, the time of breakfast with their families just prior to Sunday school. And, you know, the thought occurred to me as we were having breakfast this morning and I was watching Taylan Morris uh, toddle around and, and do her thing that it wasn't that long ago, Ashlyn, that that was you, right? I mean, that's how fast it happens. And Rayleigh and I have loved watching you guys grow. You were in the fifth grade when we came here. And that hits home with me because I've got a fifth grader now who was about four years old when we came. And just watching you guys grow has been a real joy and a real privilege, and we're very, very proud of you. I want to take a moment now, and I want to dismiss our kids who are going to head upstairs for Kids Crew along with our Kids Crew leadership and our volunteers that will be helping out this month as we do uh, Kids Crew. And so they're going to make their way upstairs. As they do that, I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14 in your Bible. Mark chapter 14, we are working through the gospel of Mark, and you'll see, of course, as you turn through the pages of your Bible that we are nearing the end of Mark's gospel. This is something that we have been uh, working for many months now, endeavoring to, to work systematically through the life and the ministry of Jesus that Mark lays out for us in his gospel. And this morning we will see a text that is connected to what we would think of the, the betrayal of Jesus and Judas and uh, and. and also, importantly, in, in a figure, a very significant figure that Mark doesn't name specifically, but in her story and in her actions, we find this beautiful picture of worship as she anoints Jesus. And, and so we'll study this in Mark chapter 14, of course, this morning. You know, when you study U.S. history, you, you go back to the, really the beginnings of America from our foundations, and you often begin with the time of the colonization, and then that, that goes into the time of the Revolutionary War. And any, any history class, any, any, uh, any history teacher that is teaching about the American Revolution always includes this figure, Benedict Arnold, right? Because you, you can't leave him out. He's a key part of the story of America, but not for, not for honorable reasons, not in, in a good way. But we think of Benedict Arnold as perhaps the most, the most famous traitor against the United States. The, the, the story of Benedict Arnold is that he rose to prominence in the life of the of the colonial army as a general and was even given as as a part of his command was given charge over West Point. Now we know West Point today because West Point is a significant place. That's the place where army cadets are trained, right? It's the it's the the official school for army cadets and officers who are trained. Well, West Point actually was a, a really significant place strategically in the life of the colonial army and, and the, the fight for revolution here uh, and independence in the Americas, Benedict Arnold was given charge over West Point. And his plan was to surrender West Point to the British. But the colonial army 
captured a British officer, and in the, in the possession of this British officer, they found letters that revealed the plot involving Benedict Arnold. And so they went to, under the leadership of General Washington, they went to seize and capture Benedict Arnold, who heard that they were coming, escaped downriver in the Hudson, surrendered himself to the British, and was then given a... a, a position within the British army. He was commissioned as a brigadier general within the British army. And, and so the story goes of Benedict Arnold and his, his uh, traitorous, uh, we would say really his treason against the United States. Well, when we study this passage this morning, we're going to see maybe even more infamous than Benedict Arnold. We're going to see perhaps the most the most infamous, the most well-known of all traitors in all of human history, in fact, we see Judas Iscariot, and we see the actions of Judas Iscariot in Mark chapter 14, that he would, that he would literally turn against Jesus and sell him out for, for some pieces of silver. But in, in sort of a juxtaposition against the story of Judas Iscariot, we also find this really beautiful picture of a woman who comes to worship Jesus. And what I want us to see this morning in our study of this text, Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, is I want us to compare the difference between these two individuals. One whom Mark does not name. He does not give us the name of this woman. Now, in the other gospel accounts, we see the, a similar story. And John chapter 12 particularly tells us that this was Mary, the sister of Martha and of Lazarus. But here we have this unnamed figure in Mark's gospel who offers this, this, uh, this deep act of worship set against the acts of one of Jesus' own, one of his own disciples, one of his 12 whom he hand-selected, who spent time with him, who, who knew the stories, who even did miraculous things in the name of Jesus. And we see the differences in their stories. And ultimately, it, it points us to the heart of genuine worship. And even more than that, it, it shines a spotlight on the saving grace of Jesus. So let's study together Mark chapter 14. Let's begin in verse 1. Let's read the first 11 verses together. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. The feast of the Passover was one of the pilgrimage feasts in the life of Jewish culture. And so during the feast of the Passover, people from around the nation of Israel, and which at this point in time isn't just contained to physically the area of the modern day Israel, but because of the events of previous conquest, Jews were scattered throughout much of the, the Near and Middle East through what we would consider today through from really from North Africa up into Asia Minor. And as they were scattered throughout all of these countries and all of these regions and all of these territories, they would come together at the time of Passover, making the pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem for this great feast. And of course, the religious leaders, knowing that Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem, wanted a way 
to arrest him. They wanted a way to, to essentially to get rid of Jesus. But they also knew that they had to be careful lest a riot break out because of the masses, the great crowds of people, many of whom were sympathetic to Jesus and his cause because they were hopeful that he might be the one, the leader, the Messiah, who would overthrow the ruling Roman government. Let's keep reading verse 3. And while he was at Bethany, you'll remember Bethany is a village on the Mount of Olives located on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, uh, roughly two miles from the city of Jerusalem. While he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. You'll read the footnote there. A denarius was about a a day's wage. And so this could have been sold for roughly a year's wage, a year's salary. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So we have this, this story of Judas in Mark chapter 14, verse 1 and 2, and then again in verses 10 and 11, sandwiched between the telling of this beautiful act of worship with this woman. Again, Mark doesn't name her, but the other gospels tell us that this was Mary, the sister of Martha and of Lazarus. You can see that in John chapter 12. And so how, how should we understand the, the differences in comparing these characters, in, in comparing their approach to Jesus and their actions and their behavior toward him? I want us to see this this morning in, in really in three steps. One, we'll see the, the actions of Mary here and her worship of Jesus. Then we'll consider the actions of Judas and his desire to betray Jesus for his own good. And then ultimately, Jesus and his own actions and his response in light of all these things. And so first, let's look at what I want to call a sincere act of good. A sincere act of good. When we study the Gospels, we find, we find an anointing event in each of the four Gospels. Matthew and Mark tell these events the closest. They, they offer the most similarities, although there are some there are some differences, most notably in, in Matthew, we find that she anoints Jesus' feet. In Mark, we find that she anoints Jesus' head. And also we find an anointing event in the Gospel of Luke. The primary difference, well, there are several differences in the Gospel of Luke. In fact, the Gospel of Luke 
is the most different from Matthew, Mark, and John. And in all likelihood, what Luke tells, although very similar, was in all likelihood a different anointing event because of some of the circumstances. Most notably the fact that Luke situates the events as happening in Galilee. Galilee was to the north, not in the city of Jerusalem. And, and he also places it at an, at an, because it's in Galilee, it's at a different spot in the timeline of Jesus' life and ministry. So, uh, so in all likelihood, what uh, Luke is giving us is an entirely different anointing event. And then you have John. And the significant difference between John's gospel and Matthew and Mark's is that John places these events as happening six days before Jesus' death, whereas Mark places them two days before the Passover. And so we, we struggle. One of the things that, that biblical historians do is they struggle with trying to reconcile these events. And I don't want to make that the focus of the message this morning so much as I just want to acknowledge that there are some of these differences that exist. And when we see these key differences, it ought not to cast a light of suspicion on these events, but rather really what it does is it, it actually strengthens our belief in the, in the gospel witness in the Bible because if the purpose was to offer a unified, indefensible uh, account of these things, then along the way in history, these key differences would have been removed. They would have just been redacted or edited out of the story. The fact that they've been left, it actually gives us strong witness to the fact that what we have now are the reliable accounts uh, of the record of the Gospels as given, as written originally by each of the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark. Luke, John. And so we, we struggle to try to reconcile some of those differences. And th- the most notable point that I want to make, I- importantly, is this. If, in fact, as John indicates in his gospel, this is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, then think about, think about even greater detail, the depth of what's happening in, in Mary's heart. Days prior to this, you can read in John chapter 11, Jesus raised Mary's brother Lazarus from the dead. Just days before this, John chapter 11 tells of that and then of course goes into chapter 12 and telling of this anointing event. And so just days prior, as Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, Mary witnessed the miraculous with her own eyes that Jesus raised her brother to life. And can you imagine what that would have done in Mary's heart? Can you imagine how she would have been overwhelmed with gratitude? Can you imagine just the the incredible depth of love and the deep desire to honor and glorify Jesus for his for his very personal act of resurrecting her own brother from the dead. And here we find that she comes in as Jesus and his disciples are reclined in the home of Simon the leper. Now, one of the other key differences between the Gospels is that in John, we see that he's, Jesus is reclining in the home of Mary, Maz, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And so along the way, some, at least one, actually more than one Gospel commentator, Gospel historian, has supposed that there is a familial connection between Simon the leper and Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It could be possibly that their father was Simon, who was once a leper who had been healed by Jesus. Now, we don't know that because we, we have really little 
evidence in history of who Simon is other than just the fact that here Jesus is staying in, having a meal in the home of Simon the leper. But Jesus is, is surrounded by his disciples whom he has loved, whom he has poured into, who have witnessed him do miraculous things. The least of which we could say was just some days prior when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Or even perhaps the, the miraculous work that he could have done in the life of Simon, this once leper whom Jesus has evidently healed. Simon would not have been a leper at this point, else the disciples would not have been in his home, much less sharing a meal with him, much less all of these things just some days prior to the Passover when those things would have marked them as ceremonially unclean. And so Simon, having been healed of his leprosy, now hosts Jesus and his disciples. Imagine this picture. Jesus surrounded by these people who have witnessed him do these incredible things, whose hearts should be full of gratitude. And yet they're all burdened by this fact that Jesus has told them now numerous times that in a matter of days, he would die. In a matter of days, he would, he would be crucified, that he would be, that he would be, Essentially, he would be betrayed, he would be crucified, but that he would then be resurrected to life. He foretold these events to his disciples. And Mary seemingly understood it on a level that the others didn't. Because what does she do? She comes to Jesus and she brings this alabaster jar it, said, it describes it here of a jar of pure nard. Now, we don't know a lot about the specifics of this, because actually in the original language, that word pure is a word that's a little bit difficult to, uh, to determine exactly what it means. It's derived from a Greek root word that means, it means faithful, or, or it's, our, it's the, the, the Greek word for faith or faithful. It's derived from the same basic root of that. So it's a faithful jar of nard. We, that doesn't really make sense to translate it. And so the idea is that it was pure. It was, uh, in any rate, it was, it was expensive. We know that because that's precisely what Mark tells us, right? This jar of ointment, this jar of nard, in all likelihood, something that was imported from a, a, a distant land, adding to its worth because it was costly when it was purchased. But then on top of that, the fact that it was in an alabaster jar meant that it had significance, that in all likelihood this was a family heirloom. And even more than that, we understand that this was an ointment that was used for ceremonially for anointing the dead. Jesus tells us that she has anointed me for my burial. And so when you, when you add all of these components together, this was a a costly and extravagant act of worship on Mary's part. That she, would, that she would anoint Jesus with this jar of pure nard. This anointing act, this, this anointing event drew, the, drew the, uh, the scolding, at least in their hearts, we see, on the parts of the others in the room. They they looked at this and they thought to themselves, why is she doing this? We could have sold that for 300 denarii. We could have sold that for a year's wage and we could have done something better. She's wasting this money. And yet Jesus recognizing their indignation and their heart toward her and toward her act of worship says to them, the poor will always be with you. Me 
you will not always have me. And so leave her alone. Let her worship me. What she is doing, Jesus says, is a good thing. What she is doing is right because she's anointing me for my burial. This is, this is the, the, the deepest act of devotion. This is, this is worship in its purest form. Now, consider that. In the Gospel of Mark, women play a key role. In fact, if think back on our study of Mark's gospel. Think about the woman in Mark chapter 5 who had suffered for more than 12 years with, with a hemorrhage, with the discharge of blood, and how she reached up and touched the hem of Jesus' garment and she was healed. She was unnamed and yet Jesus praised her for her sincere act of devotion. Think of the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7. And think about how she cried out to Jesus. Think about the way that she reached out to him in true worship of who he was. And Jesus again, Jesus, Jesus says of this woman that, that, that her, her actions, her thoughts, her intentions are pure and sincere. Think of the widow in the temple in John chapter 12 that we studied just two weeks ago. And this woman who gave two small copper coins and yet set against all of the other acts of, of worship, all of the other religious actions in that, in that chapter, we see that Jesus praises this woman and her simple, humble gift because he says she gave everything that she has. Consider this woman here, who again, Mark does not name specifically. And yet this woman, Jesus tells us, look at verse 9, that wherever the story is told of Jesus, of the gospel, we would speak of this woman and her act of worship as she breaks this alabaster jar of this expensive oil and, and anoints the head of Jesus with it out of sincere and a, and a humble desire to honor and worship him. Women play a key role in the witness of Mark. I would add to that, Mark chapter 16, we see, Mark tells us that the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus were women. And in, in that day and time, uh, typically women weren't allowed to offer eyewitness testimony. And yet Mark specifically identifies women as the original eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Women play an incredibly significant role in Mark's gospel and and. I think also importantly in the church even today. We ask the question, why did she, why did she break the jar the way that she did? Why, did she, why not use some of it? Why use all of it? Well, I think even in that we see the, the heartfelt devotion on her part. First of all, in this, this was ointment that would have been used for uh, for anointing the dead. Typically, they would, they would go into someone whose body uh, had been prepared for burial and had been laid to rest, and they would anoint their body with these very fragrant oils as a way to cover the smell of the body as it decomposed. Now, that seems kind of gruesome, but it's in reality what they would do because they didn't have embalming processes much like what we do today. I, I don't mean to say that the technology for embalming didn't exist. We, we know that from archaeology, that there were cultures that embalmed their dead. But typically, that wasn't the sort of thing that uh, the average Joe, if you will, could have afforded. 
And so they would prepare the body. They would wrap the body in burial cloths. They would lay the body to rest in a tomb. And then they would anoint the body with oils. We know that because of the late hour of Jesus' death, the late hour at which they took him off the cross, they were hurried to prepare his body and place him in the tomb before the Sabbath began. And then they couldn't do anything until the day after the Sabbath. And so that was why the women were going to the grave in the first place when they discovered that Jesus was no longer there, that he was resurrected. And so prior to all of these events taking place, Jesus is anointed here with this this fragrant, this costly, expensive ointment in this beautiful picture of worship. And she breaks the jar because in doing that, symbolically, that that symbolizes really two things. One, it symbolizes the completeness of this act of worship, right? Oftentimes, when when a body was anointed with these fragrant oils, They would smash the jar and leave the jar in the presence of the dead body in its burial place. That was, again, symbolic of the fact that it's finished, that that, that this is over and, and this work has been done. So she smashes the jar, she breaks the jar. In one, in part, I should say rather, in, in an act of symbolizing the completeness of her act of devotion and even possibly the completeness of Jesus' work in his ministry, but also in significantly, by doing that, then this ointment can't be used again, right? I mean, once she breaks the jar, the, the, the work is done. The ointment is, is, is spent, it is, it is used up, and this is a costly sacrifice. This is a costly act of worship. Think of it along this, these lines. I tried to I tried to wrestle a little bit with this this week and and trying to think, how can we illustrate this using using terms that we might understand today? So for the sake of trying to make sense of this, let's suppose a nice round number like $50,000 as an annual wage. There are a lot of people that make less than $50,000. A lot of people make more than $50,000. So we'll just call that an average wage, okay? $50,000. And so if $50,000 is an average annual wage, imagine that I had $50,000 and I lit it on fire, just wasted it, gone. Well, we don't really, I mean, we don't burn things as sacrifices anymore like they might have in those days. So imagine that I had something that was worth $50,000, let's say. More than that, let's suppose that I had in, I had in my possession an object that was worth roughly $50,000. And on top of that, it was a family heirloom, as in all likelihood this, this alabaster jar of ointment was a, a family heirloom. And let's, let's say that this was an object that had an even greater sentimental worth because it had been passed down maybe from generation to generation within a family, saved for its future use, maybe even just preserved just simply because it was something valuable and worthwhile. And so it was passed from generation to generation as an heirloom. Do you have any heirlooms in your family? That, any, any things that are really significant uh, in in your family's history, and maybe it's you know maybe it's a, a piece of furniture that's been handed down over time through the generations. Maybe it's I don't know. Maybe it's a, a set of dishes. I thought right. 
I, th- I thought of something like that. Maybe let's suppose that you had a really nice set of fine china and, and you just smashed all of it. Something along those lines gets at the significance and the worth of this object. And yet here it's all spent in anointing Jesus. Now you would expect that disciples would have said, this is truly the Son of God. He is worthy of this and more. And in fact, if in fact this was Mary, they had witnessed some days before, they would have witnessed Jesus raise her brother Lazarus from the dead. You could think that in their minds they would have thought, yeah, I mean, of course she would offer this as her act of worship to Jesus, right? Because he's raised her brother from the dead. And yet in their hearts, they thought, what a waste. What a waste. It's significant that we see this comparison between the hearts of the, the religious, the, the ones who are named in Mark's gospel, the ones who have position, men like the disciples, like Judas, and this woman who Mark does not name. Someone that we might consider to be of, of relatively little position, And yet, Mark elevates her status because of the the depth of her devotion, the sincerity of her worship to Jesus. And so we see it as a sincere act of good that she offers him. Now, you may think, how are we going to get through the other two points? Well, I promise, about 80% of the message was that. I want us to understand that because even this passage spends most of the time talking about that event. And now, in comparison, let's look at the actions of Judas and even compare that ultimately against the actions of Jesus. What we see in, in Judas is a selfish act of greed. This woman that anoints the head of Jesus does what is good and honorable and worshipful. Judas does something utterly selfish and greedy. He goes, to, he goes to the chief priests, verse 10 tells us, in order to betray Jesus. Judas was the one that sought them out. Judas was the one who was looking for the opportunity to, to betray Jesus, to traitorously turn on him. Judas is the one who approached them, and they were glad and promised him money. Yes, we'll pay you if we'll give you 30 pieces of silver if you just hand him over to us. And that's exactly what Judas does. You know, we find that oftentimes, sadly, the self-righteous, the self-righteous scold others for their sincere acts of worship. The self-righteous people tend to look down their nose at those whose hearts are truly devoted and, and truly on fire for what the Lord has done. And, and we even see that picture in Judas here. That he was among those that, that were indignant toward this woman. In fact, again, if you study the story in John's gospel, in John chapter 12, John even goes so far as to say, that Judas was the one who was indignant because he wanted a cut of that money himself. He was, he was stealing from the, the disciples' funds because he was their treasurer. And so Judas was upset, John tells us, mostly because that was money that could have gone to him. 
So it was a selfish act of greed that he would betray Jesus for the way that it would benefit him as opposed to truly honoring and worshiping him as a savior. But beautifully, this story points the way to something even greater, even greater than this sincere act of good and and certainly much greater than this selfish act of greed. This points the way to Jesus' sacrifice. And what we see in the sacrifice of Jesus is a saving act of grace, a saving act of grace. Jesus says, leave her alone. What she's done is a good thing. Why trouble her? Jesus tells his disciples, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And in that way, we understand that this points the way toward Jesus' death and his sacrifice. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, including Chickasha, Oklahoma, today, right? In all of the world, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Here's the two key points that I want you to see in this text this morning. Two key points of application. First of all, I I want us to see through this that no act of worship is lost when it is pointed at Jesus and his saving grace. You may think, well, what I have isn't that much. But anything and everything that we offer Jesus, he's worthy of it and all the more. And anytime we shine a light on the gospel, and anytime our thoughts, our words, our actions, our motives, anytime the things that we do might point the way to Jesus, then our acts of worship are not lost because they are pointing to the one who is truly worthy of our worship, as Jesus is. And secondly, and also importantly, I think it's key that we understand that Jesus says of this woman, she has done what she could in verse 8, right? She has done what she could. You and I need to understand that we can't do everything. We are not responsible to do everything. God has plans that, that, that incorporate all of his body and all the different pieces. And there's so much going on that we, that we may never see. But we are each responsible to do what we can to offer our part to serve Christ, to bring to the table what we have as worship of him, offering our lives, our gifts, our everything in worship of who he truly is. She did what she could, Jesus says. You and I, we need to do the same. We need to do what we are able. We need to use what has been given to us. We need to use, catch this, the treasures of our life, just as she spent her treasures in worship of Jesus. We need to use the treasures of our life. Our earthly treasures need to be spent in honoring and exalting Jesus just as hers were. My prayer is that God would stir your heart, that he would move you today to to truly, sincerely offer all that you have to him in worship just as she has. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. Our time of invitation today, if you're here and maybe God is working, maybe he's speaking to you and, and he's prompting your heart in some way that you might bring all that you have to him in worship of him, that you might bring your gifts, your, your treasures to him as an act of worship. 
And I pray that you would be obedient today and you would surrender all that you have to Jesus in honor and worship of who he is. And if you're here today and the Lord is stirring your heart, maybe he's stirring your heart to the greatest act of worship, which is the surrender of your life. Trusting Jesus as Lord and Savior, believing in his promise, knowing that he has the power to forgive you because of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, that he has the power to forgive you, to cleanse you of your sins. And I pray that today would be the day that you would trust him, that you would surrender your life to him. In whatever way God is moving, in whatever way that he is stirring in your heart, my prayer is that you would respond in faithful obedience to him today, just as this woman does in her own act of devotion to her Savior. Would you pray with me? Lord, stir our hearts today. Move in us, we pray, God, that we might honor you with our lives. Just as we see in this scripture that that this act of worship is a reminder that, that, Jesus, that you shed your blood for us. May we respond by, by surrendering our lives to you, our treasures to you, our gifts to you, all that we have in honor of who you are. Be exalted in us, we pray. In the name of Jesus.